A righteous man may have many troubles, said the psalmist. Jesus actually went further. Woe to you, he said, when all men speak well of you. Rejoice when you are persecuted, he said. Even on another occasion he said, all men will hate you because of me. Difficult to avoid, actually, the obvious truth throughout the Bible in both Old and New Testaments that people faithful to God will face opposition. In our world today as well, those truths are amply displayed in many parts of the world. Christians are persecuted. Every year, thousands of Christians are killed for their faith throughout the world. Christianity is statistically by far the most persecuted faith in the world. And although this country is very far from being a place place of religious persecution, it's not frankly getting any easier to be a Christian in this country. It's now becoming commonplace to hear of uh, university Christian unions being banned from their campus or a, uh, or a Christian man being barred from an adoption panel because of his religious views or this week a voluntary Christian discipleship course was banned from prisons because uh, claiming that Jesus is the Son of God might offend some. And uh, those are just the headlines. Those are just the tip of a vast iceberg of relentless quiet pressure to force Christians to conform to the world rather than be faithful to Christ. And indeed, I think sometimes that quiet pressure can be more effective than outright persecution. The American futurologist George Barner wrote a book in 1990 entitled The Frog in the Kettle. Barner described how, actually, I've never tried this, I hasten to add, just in case anyone's worried about my callousness with animals. Um, If you drop, says Barner, a frog into hot water, it will immediately jump out to safety. He says, but if you put it in cold water and then very gently heat that water, it will not jump. Each um, degree rise, it adjusts to, until it quietly falls asleep and doesn't actually have the energy to jump out of the water. And it gets boiled. Barna warned, actually, that the same applies to the church slowly, incrementally our environment actually becomes hotter and hotter and it happens so slowly that Christians see no reason to jump. They see no reason to stand out and make a stand against their culture. We just settle into a slightly warmer environment. Every year it getting slightly more difficult until actually it's too late. Frankly, we're just spiritually too weak to be able to jump. That's what was happening to Mordecai and Esther in this book of Esther. It was getting hotter and hotter in the kingdom of Persia, but they had not jumped. They were living in exile in the Persian city of Susa, 
But in their day, actually the call had gone up, as you learned um, uh, a couple of weeks ago, for God's people to return to the promised land, for them to reform themselves into a self-governing community, to rebuild Jerusalem in the promised land and to, 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 to get out of exile. But um, Mordecai and Esther hadn't returned. They hadn't jumped. And it's very tempting to criticise them. Couldn't they see how they were being compromised year on year? Why didn't they make their stand? Move to Jerusalem as the Bible called them to. But actually the book of Esther itself doesn't criticise them. doesn't make any comments at all. In the real world there are all sorts of historical, cultural, personal reasons sometimes why they might not have jumped and why we, in our turn, may not jump. When other, more enthusiastic, gung-ho Christians may have been encouraging us to, to do long ago. Yet one way or another, it just didn't seem the right time, the right moment. We need to be cautious about criticising uh, people who were uh, make those difficult judgments. Clear judgments can be difficult to make sometimes. Esther and Mordecai are not criticised for staying in Persia. Some of us may have difficult decisions to make. What point does the scientist say, I couldn't do that research because it violates my Christian principles? At what point does the teacher say, I could not teach that material on sexuality because it treats all kinds of sexual relationship as equal and I frankly do not believe that. At what point does the nurse say, I cannot be involved in that person's care or that particular job because it is aiding abortion. At what point does the employee say, I cannot do that task because now that would implicate me personally in dishonesty. At what point does a parent say to their child, you cannot watch that film because its message is anti-Christian. At what point do we jump and say, no, I must separate myself from this. Truth is, the judgment is difficult. But one thing we must be absolutely clear about in our world as in Esther's world, slowly but surely the temperature will rise. For Esther in particular, things um, by the time we get to chapter 4 have become... Uh, deeply difficult for her faith. Remember, she's become one of hundreds of concubines of uh, uh, King Xerxes in his citadel in Susa. At Mordecai's instructions, she's kept her Jewish identity secret. Within the limits of her restricted and compromised situation, she has quite a good life frankly, but it is hardly a model of faithfulness to God. Esther is in trouble now, spiritually, and the water is getting hotter and hotter. Chapters uh, uh, 4 and 5 in the book of Esther show us 
how that difficult state of affairs is reversed. And we're going to have to look at chapter 5 and beyond actually uh, next week. This week we're going to concentrate on chapter 4. But even before we do that, we're going to have to go back to chapter 3 and just remind ourselves of something that uh, Richard was uh, uh, beginning to show us last week. It is this. Faithfulness to God brings trouble. That is the lesson of Mordecai in chapter 3. Unlike Esther, Mordecai had decided not to be completely silent about his faith. He'd instructed Esther to stay silent, perhaps for her safety, but he wasn't so careful about his own safety. Chapter 3, verse 1. After these events, Xerxes um, uh, honoured Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agatite, sorry about the long words, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than all the other officials, all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. This man Haman has risen then to a very high position in the kingdom of Persia, and he demands that everyone, including Mordecai, should kneel to him at the king's instruction. And Mordecai will not. Mordecai is a good Jew, as he makes uh, uh, plain a couple of uh, verses on, and therefore he will not kneel in worship to any ruler. He kneels to God alone. When our idolatrous and arrogant world sees that sort of attitude in people's hearts, it, it, it is often provoked to rage as Haman was. Verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour, he was enraged. The Hamans of this world. Then, when they see that, they vent their spleen on God's society by exciting fear about the dangerously pervasive influence of this impudent group of believers, about the, their seditious unwillingness to, to toe the line. Verse 8, Haman said to King Xerxes, there's a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of all other people who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. There's an awful lot of that stuff floating around today amongst the chattering classes in our country. Evangelicals, in particular, are seen as dangerously out of step. It's definitely, our rulers are told, not in their interest to tolerate them. Haman's hope was uh, annihilation. Perhaps that's, um, uh, those ambitions are not quite so present uh, in our country today, but vilification and systematic exclusion from any role in society is definitely on the agenda of some. Think of the pressure on Mordecai as he sees uh, Haman plotting in that way. It's not just him who will suffer. 
It is God's people throughout the whole empire. And all Mordecai has to do to stop this is to bow and scrape a little in Haman's presence. He could even keep his fingers crossed behind his back while he did it, couldn't he? I think of the conversations that were had by, between him and the royal officials at the gate with Mordecai. Mordecai, you chose to stay in Susa. You could have gone. You've already compromised on a thousand one occasions by staying here amongst these people. Why won't you compromise on this? Think of the consequences, Mordecai. This little piece of stubborn rebellion of yours is set to spiral completely out of control. Who knows where it will end? You, you may be ready to take the consequences, Mordecai, but you have a responsibility to other people. If you enrage this man, Haman, he could destroy thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. You're a fool, Mordecai. Bow the knee. Selfish Mordecai. Your own perception of your conscience is more important to you than the lives of others. You're a hypocrite, Mordecai. You take the money from this city, the wealth from this city. Why don't you bow to this city? But Mordecai will not budge. And if we face, if we, if we are faithful to God, we too will face similar situations. Perhaps it will be at work. And finally, um, after a hundred times when, when we wrestled with our conscience, finally we have to say, I will not do that. And face the consequences. Perhaps it will be in the family. You know that the trouble that might be brought in family relationships if we stand up for God. Perhaps we'll have to risk friendships. Perhaps actually here as a church we might have to make a stand on something that seriously alienates us from, from the world around us. And I, I, I have to say, so often, the sticking point seems arbitrary. You can almost be persuaded to flex on this one, as we have on other occasions. And often there is enormous pressure to conform. Now let me be clear, sometimes Christians are just unnecessarily stroppy. They are just difficult and we must be very careful not to be just stroppy. But on the other hand, we must understand there is a time to jump. There is a time to say, no further, I stand against this. There is a time to be absolutely rigid. I will not stand for this. I will not do this.
And if it gets too hot before we make the decision, then actually maybe by that time we'll just be too compromised, too spiritually weak, too lost and admired in all the complicated arguments about whether I should or whether I shouldn't. To see with clarity, this is the moment. I've got to jump. Chapter 4 of uh, the book of Esther describes how Esther, who is much more deeply compromised than Mordecai, how Esther slowly discovers the courage to make a stand. Esther moves actually through a series of phases in this chapter in finding that courage and I want us to look at those because I think they are so important for us today. The first phase is denial. You see that in verse 4? She, uh, Mordecai has learned that um, all the Jews are in deep trouble and he uh, has uh, decided to go around in sackcloth and ashes mourning. And then in verse 4, when Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. This is a fascinating little portrayal of human nature here. You see, Esther doesn't want to know that Mordecai is mourning. She doesn't want to know that there's trouble out there brewing. She thinks the trouble will go away if she just reclothes Mordecai. We human beings have this extraordinary capacity for denial. In the Second World War, there were comfortable German homes just a short distance from Belsen concentration camp. The, uh, um, the forces that relieved the concentration camp said that if the wind was blowing in the wrong direction, the smell was overpowering in those suburban homes. And yet those people denied that they knew anything about what was going on. The German pastor, Martin Niemoller, wrote in 1945 about actually his guilt and his collective guilt, and their collective guilt, in actually just denying that anything was going terribly wrong in their society. He said, first they came for the communists and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the Jews and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for the Catholics and I didn't speak up because I was a Protestant. Then they came for me. And by that time there was no one left to speak up for me. We are capable of the most extraordinary levels of denial, of not speaking up, of running out to those, uh, those prophets of our world who wear sackcloths and ashes and desperately trying to cover them up with something nicer. Because we cannot bear the thought that brother and sister Christians are being persecuted in North Korea, in India, in Iran, in, in, in China and many other places. 
We like to think that actually if we just cover it up with um, nice worship and nice music and a warm fellowship and uh, happy thoughts about God, then surely no trouble will come our way. We must not deny the reality of the real opposition that so often comes to God's people. I wonder about you, for instance. Have you ever seriously thought what would make me resign from my job? I remember having to go to my boss when I was um, working before I was a pastor. Pastors don't work. And I had to tell my boss, I'm sorry, if you make me do this, I would have to resign. It would have been deeply difficult for me, inconvenient. I, I, I had a life built around that job at the time. And thank God she stepped back and didn't force me to uh, um, do what she was asking me to do. But have we ever actually in our, in our hearts said, what would make me jump? Or do we just deny it? Do we just hide our eyes from what's going on? Do we uh, perhaps actually deny the rising tide of misery that there is in our increasingly dysfunctional society? Um, do you avert your eyes from beggars? I remember our children when they, they got, to a, got to a stage of first being able to engage with such things, preschoolers still, um, being shocked that there were people begging on the street, uh, almost insisting that we, we ransack our purses to, uh, for them. shock us talking in the street to a deeply distressed person last week and uh, people who knew us both I saw literally cross the road to the other side to get past us they're not Christians but I wonder whether we would be any different. Now you see, we mustn't deny the reality of the opposition that God's people face, of the difficulties and challenges there are to living in our society. We must not, like Esther, rush out and just try to cover it up with a nice set of clothes. Mordecai, though, will not have that. There is misery and she must see it. He will not take the clothes. The next phase of Esther's response is defeatism. She sends a servant, Hathak, to find out what is wrong. Verses 9 to 11. Hathak went back to her and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. 
And then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned to the king, there is but one law that he be put to death. The only exception is this, this is for the king to extend the golden scepter to him to spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to, to go to the king. Esther's saying, in effect, Mordecai, I can do nothing. To try to act for me would just be suicidal. I, why bother? And frankly, for us, we are deterred by much lesser things, aren't we? If I refuse that task at work, it'll only mean that someone else uh, else does it and it'll jeopardise my job to, uh, to boot. I might as well just do it. It won't make any substantial difference to, the, to, to what's going on in this, in this company, this organisation, by refusing. Ah, if I try to help that needy person, frankly, I will make very little impact on their lives and if I get involved, I will only get sucked in and they won't be any better off in, uh, in the long run and I may have made a few new enemies. I can't do anything. If I start um, writing letters about the persecution of Christians throughout the world, how is North Korea going to be changed by that? How is China going to be influenced by that? I can do nothing. We as a church are not going to make any great difference to the world by making some stupid stand for Christ. We might just be hated a little bit more by, by, by the wider society. We can do nothing. But Mordecai won't let that go. The next phase, the most important phase in this process is Esther needs to hear the truth and that she does from Mordecai. Verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Don't think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. If you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. Who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai is saying three things to Esther. First he is saying obedience to Christ, obedience to God is actually the only place of safety. The king's house was the most secure place in the known world, but, but Mordecai says that is not a safe place. God, the unseen person behind the book of Esther, can reach even into the king's palace, as we've already seen, and he will judge Esther if she is disobedient. She and all her family will die, says Mordecai. We deceive ourselves if we think there is any place of safety in this world other than being obedient to God. There is not. So what if your job is at risk if you stand up for Christ? So what if your friendship is at risk? So what if your family harmony is at risk? So what if we as a church are at risk for standing up to Christ? Our soul is at risk if we don't. 
So what if we will be reviled because, of, because we say heterosexual marriage is, is God's plan for the family? So what if we will be hated if we say Jesus Christ is the only way to God? Frankly, I would rather face the wrath of my world than face the wrath of my God. And Esther must hear that. Second truth that Mordecai um, tells her is that actually God's victory in this situation is not in doubt. He is absolutely certain that if she does not help, he says, then deliverance will arise from another place. Mordecai knew that the only time God's people um, globally were in any trouble was when they were disobedient. And he, he is being obedient. So God, he reasons, will save them. He does not abandon his obedient people. The only question, he says, in this situation, Esther, is whether you will have the privilege of being involved in that and being used by God or whether actually you will have to look on in envy and disappointment as you see someone else being used. And that is the question for us here. The only question about whether God is going to be glorified in this city is whether we will have a part in that or whether we will actually be bypassed because God doesn't use disobedient people. God doesn't use people in denial. God doesn't use defeatists. God uses people who follow Christ. And says Mordecai, in God's plan there are no accidents. Who knows, he says, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Who knows but that you have come to East Oxford for such a time as this. Frankly, God knows. That's exactly what he's done. God has brought you to this church today to achieve his purposes in your life. God has given you this position, your present job, your present family position, your present health, your present life experience for this moment to serve Christ now. Esther, you may have felt that the whole of, of your life was out of your control. You may have felt that the whim of King Xerxes was what controlled your life. I'm telling you, Esther, says Mordecai, I think God has a plan in this. And you can be part of it if you will serve him. And Esther, bless her, realises it's true.
the final phase is obedience. Verse 15. Esther sent this to reply to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. She knows she needs new spiritual strength, perhaps as she'd never, uh, never known in the past. You know, eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. If I'm sacked, I'm sacked. If I become poor, I become poor. If I lose friends, I lose friends. If I'm bitterly opposed, I'm bitterly opposed. But I will not disobey God. That is what God is calling us to today. And for, I would guess, all of us, the risks are far less. So why do we live in fear? Why will we not actually say, I will put Jesus Christ at the heart of my life. I will serve Jesus Christ and do everything that he tells me to do. I will entrust the rest of my life to him. And I will not turn aside to right or left. No matter what this world throws at me, I will be obedient. Because even death itself holds no fear for me. So why should any of those lesser things hold a fear? I call you today, just simply, to leave this place with no fear but the fear of the Lord, with no worries but the concern to be obedient, with no burden on your shoulders, but the burden to follow Christ. And Christ promised personally, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Esther, at the end of chapter 4, is free. Are you?